0: Welcome to the Redeemed Hearts podcast, where we encourage you to allow God to transform you mentally, emotionally, and relationally by living from your redeemed heart. Your hosts, Worley and Danina Kennedy, are licensed professional counselors and are the founders of Redeemed Hearts Ministries. Thank you for joining us today for part two of our review of the book, When Striving Cease, by Ruth Chow Simons. Last week, Worley and Danina discussed the different ways we self-reliantly strive leaving us more overwhelmed and anxious. If you missed part one, we encourage you to go listen to it before proceeding with this episode. If you're caught up, we are going to jump back into the second part of Worley and Danina's discussion and examine how grace has the power to replace our striving and stress. Thanks so much for listening today. Here's Worley and Danina. You know, in
1: this part of the book, Ruth personally, I mean, she... I heard her speak, um, be interviewed on this, and she just, she spent a lot of time in the books of Romans and Galatians because she knew she needed to realign her heart with the God who's done everything possible for us to be in his presence without earning it. And, um, you know, she, she just realized and even talks about how, you know, sometimes um, you know, in our pride and fallenness, we're self-reliant and self-righteous and we want to rely on ourselves. But on the other side, we can really be biblically illiterate people that's just simply unaware of God's character. Um, So then we can't really rely on him because we don't really know him. And so in the second part of the book, she's trying to help us say, hey, this is who God is. This is who you belong to. Um, And to understand that God's love, you know, for us and His wanting to just be in relationship with us and present with us, um, is—I mean, it's there on our worst days, and it's there for us on our best days, and we're never—we're never without Him, and we're never void of needing His grace on our worst days or our best days.
2: She mentions she spending the time in Romans and Galatians. Um, I would just encourage anyone to read Galatians. It's it's short. It's six chapters. You could read it over and over again. It's often called the Mini Romans because it's a more compact um, communication of of similar topics. Now, you don't want to not read Romans because it is full of what it is that God has done for us. That the law, the 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 you know the commands of. What we're to do and not do could never do for us, mm-hmm. but Galatians synthesizes it, and so you could read Galatians, and you could just read it over and over again, and by the end of a month, if you did that, you know, every day, by the end of the month, you'd have a pretty good idea what it says.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's the Scriptures that are going to bring all this to light.
1: Well, and in, so in these next chapters, um, I mean, part of what she says that grace does for us is. grace makes us new, not better. Grace fuels good works. Grace cancels our debt for real. Grace rewrites our stories. Grace replaces fear with freedom. Grace makes forgiveness possible. And grace is enough to hold us together. So the the first chapter here is grace makes new, not better. And here she's transitioning from discussing all the ways we strive for self-improvement, which we've just talked about, to the answer found in grace. And um, one of the things she helps we understand here is that self-righteous striving is more hopeless than we want to believe, but grace is more life-transforming than we realize. So she wants us to understand that grace is not a betterment plan. It's actually a total replacement offer.
2: She says, striving for self-improvement is a dead-end street. Hard work and achievement, while commendable, lack power as a true source of change. And the verse she uses, Second Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Mm. She
1: has a um, quote I mean, she looks at Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 in this passage that are, you know, very significant about us. You know, we were completely dead, not just a little dead. We were completely dead in our our trespasses, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Then verse eight and nine it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of all of our works, our performing, all, all the stuff we've talked about already, that no one may boast.
2: She says, We're by nature, but all by nature, strivers and self improvers. But I like the illustration she gave, which was a real life story of her husband's brother, her brother in law getting a heart transplant. Mm -hmm. And she references Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28, where God says he's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to put his spirit within us in those verses. Um, And I just wanted to say, this is really what Redeemed Hearts Ministries is. Mm -hmm. It's that we as believers have been given a new heart and the spirit that works within us to take God's word and build upon this something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have, as she used the illustration of her brother-in-law getting a heart transplant, she just said it was, they weren't trying to improve or they couldn't improve the old run-down damaged heart. Mm-hmm. It took this new heart and it was just...
1: Had to completely be replaced.
2: Yeah, she gave, she, she gave a description of kind of that process. Mm. She says the gospel is not a recipe for self-improvement.
1: And she quotes Jerry Bridges saying, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. It really covers both sides of Mm -hmm. that.
2: So then she goes into chapter 10 and just grace fuels good works because we are commanded to do good works. We live with that tension to, you know, to to love God and love others. Um, so she offers here for us when God talks about this, you know, so how do we live with that, that we're to be about good works, and yet she's talking about to cease striving. And so um, b- basically in Galatians three twenty three to 24, it says this, it says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Um, She said, grace doesn't mean that we don't strive. It isn't an excuse to be lazy or apathetic about the marks of a Christian life. Rather, it is the catalyst by which we partake in it. Grace simply makes it possible for us to stop striving for ourselves and strive out of a love for God instead. When we are informed by grace and not conformed to the law, we can strive the way we ought. Um, the law, the commands of Scripture, were powerless to overcome our uh, this this fleshly part of us that wants to do do it all and. Do it apart from God. And the law could not change us. The commands of the Old Testament could not change us. So that's why they would say, he would say, until Jesus came, that law was a tutor, it was a guide, it was kind of what, what man practiced. But we live on this other side of Christ coming in the death and resurrection, where in in being given the Holy Spirit, where now we do we can co- fully and completely live in grace, so that um, we know we're not able to be perfect and to keep the law and so forth. But it's the presence of the Spirit within us that um, continues to guide us to to obey God, do what He wants us to do. Um, she uses the term orthopraxy is just a practice of what we believe orthodoxy is what we believe orthopraxy is a practice of what we believe and she says orthodoxy tells us what is straight but orthopraxy tells us how to walk along the straight line so um which is
1: basically saying right living overflows from right believing yes
2: and that's why the scriptures are so important Mm -hmm. and that and and yet when we read the scriptures it's not like we're reading a book that is distant from us it's this the holy spirit wrote the book and and it's how we engage with the thoughts of god and and it's what helps us to think our way through all of these things that you know we that go on in our life one of one of the things she says here that i thought was good she says, if you have received God's gift of grace through faith, you don't need to figure out how to be a model Christian, how to be more on fire for God, or even how to please God. If you're in Christ, you're already pleasing Him, pleasing to Him because of Jesus. Your number one job as a believer is to return again and again to the good news of the gospel, the foundational truth of redeeming grace, and let it draw you near to Him once again. Um, and so I would just say, what I took from this, in, in the you know couple of upcoming chapters, is we got to keep going back again and again and again to what is it that God's done for. Mm-hmm. Any other comments on chapter ten? Mm-hmm. So chapter eleven, she talks about the title of its grace cancels our debt, and then she says for real. Um, she highlights the word should in this chapter. That I would say it's a part of Christian vocabulary with the following trains of thought. She says, if you love Jesus, you should give at least 10% of your earnings. If you love Jesus, you should volunteer at church. If you love Jesus, you should sell everything and be a missionary. I mean, that's the pressure that the word should puts on us. She says, the word should is what turns a response of love to a response of debt. And the problem with debt. Is it? It feels like a weight
1: or burden until we paid it off. Mm-hmm. And she, and, and so she says, "It's like bills stacking up on the kitchen counter. Like lit, we're feeling like we're always behind."
2: So living in grace means we don't have to pay a debt. The debt has been paid, so we're not. We don't have to do these, these things because we should do them. We don't owe God anything. That's it. I want to repeat that. We don't owe God anything. Mm-hmm. And even if, I mean, for the non-believer, he, he has to keep trying to pay the debt that he will never be able to pay. But for the believer, we our debt's been paid. And so that word should is inconsistent with living debt-free. She says, she uses an example that if someone paid off my mortgage, I would feel great relief. I um, not find it here, but yeah, she says, um I mean the the of course we'd feel great relief. If somebody paid out my mortgage, I'd feel great relief. But the gospel is not taking out, you know, a loan that I've got to keep paying. There, there's there's no freedom in that, the, the the debt's already been paid for.
1: Yeah, she says, you know, if you're handed a free and clear deed to your home, you wouldn't send in a check this month to a mortgage company. You'd feel a burden lifted. You'd sit in gratitude. You'd be eager to enjoy your home. You'd wonder at the amazing kindness of the benefactor who took on your debt and paid it in full. If we want to feel the same kind of freedom right now in our daily lives, we have to start with understanding the whole truth of the gospel. Just meaning that, you know, Christ has he's he's done that for us, and I like how she says, you know, that what He did for us—it's not just—it's that our debts aren't just canceled; our account is filling to overflowing. I mean, that's grace—is mm-hmm. He's giving us above and beyond,
0: mm-hmm.
1: even you know what what we deserve, what we need um, in all of that. So.
2: One of the scriptures she quotes is Romans 8, 1 and 2. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Mm-hmm. Um, it just really struck me in this thought of we don't owe God. That debt's been paid. We respond to God out of um, what he's already given to us, the love for him. The desire to please Him, the resources you know internally Mm -hmm. to be able to confess our sin, to be humble, to work hard. I mean, I'm still to love my wife. I'm still to lead my family. I'm still to raise my children up in the way they should go. I mean, those are all things that are before me. But those things, doing those things well, doesn't make me any more right with God. Mm -hmm. It's
1: and and when it says grace cancels our debt for real. I mean, I like that in this chapter, she gives the example of Paul who had murdered Christians. And, you know, then, I mean, even, you know, held the coats for those who stoned Stephen while he was preaching. Um, And, but that when he surrendered his life to Christ, it didn't erase his past. Um, It only rewrote his future. Mm -hmm. And isn't that good news for us? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we can't rewrite our past Mm-mm. but in Christ you know we can rewrite our future well, which is part of what she's going into the you know to the next chapter yeah
2: and and that's a good pretty good transition um into the next chapter this is god rewrites our stories um but you know before we get there I want to read this final quote that she says cuz I just think it's good she is actually applying grace to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. that says, what's the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? And then she says, God's redemption story starring Jesus. He's the star of the story and the grace by which he brings us back to him as a debt-free restoration project. It's not a low-interest loan or a 30-year mortgage. Both of these may be good deals or generous, but they are far from free. Grace is free. So into chapter 12, God rewrites our stories. Um, she, She has this quote that says, If we hope in our plans, we will be derailed when a circumstance, a season, or an entire year doesn't make sense. She says, we can plan, but... We cannot control how our lives turn out, and in this chapter, she, um, she's constantly saying that we're not the ones who are in control of all of these things that happen in our life that actually determine what the direction our lives go. But we, but we live deceived. I mean, the world has this message to us that says. You know, you, you can basically determine how your life's going to go if you'll do this and this and this. Mm-hmm. If you'll follow this course if you'll do this thing. And she's saying it, that that the scriptures are saying God's the one that determines that. I mean, Proverbs sixteen nine: a, a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes or directs his steps. Um. Even to the point of we don't get to choose, she quotes, we don't get to choose how we're used, when we're used, or what part we will play. So there's just a lot of things in this chapter that I think that, that need to be thought through about how much control we have over what happens in our lives. We don't control when we die. You know, I can tell you my life is a string of, I thought it was going to be this way. And yet, this is how it is, mm-hmm. and it's God who's the one for the believer who's, as He's redeemed him, who intends to write a really good story that in our in our lives it's part of this larger story, you know, of which Jesus is the star.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good.
2: That's chapter twelve.
1: Um. 13 is grace replaces fear with freedom. And, you know, here, just coming off the verse uh, 2 Timothy 1 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And, you know, here Ruth says that Satan's very favorite tactic from the beginning has been to mess with our minds and to plant seeds of doubts about God's faithfulness, about God's forgiveness, and about God's favor. And she says these three things really are the trifecta of freedom. In a believer's life, um, God's faithfulness eclipses our clawing for control. God's forgiveness erases debilitating guilt and shame. And God's favor eradicates our need to look anywhere else for love than God himself. So she's, my stomach is growling. So
2: well, I hear it. I know. Do our it, listeners
1: hear it? I'm sure they're going to hear it, yeah. I Should have eaten breakfast, huh? Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, it this trifecta of freedom, I mean, it's based on his faithfulness, his forgiveness, and God's favor um, that, you know, gives us that freedom where we're not so ruled by a spirit of fear.
2: Well, and I just, in this chapter, basically, I, I mean, I wrote... We constantly must reorient ourselves to walking God's transforming grace to combat Mm self-striving. And that true change is made of millions of small, daily, seemingly insignificant choices. The course we take is determined by the many pivots we make in the direction of our heart's desire and core beliefs. And then she says, if your heart is fixed on fear, your actions will be directed by Mm self-preservation. In contrast, if you find assurance in what God says, In in who God says you are by the work of grace, your responses will reflect what you value most. And so if you're a fearful person, the answer isn't to keep striving. The answer is, who are you in Christ? Mm -hmm. What has God done for you? What does he want from you today? And that's grace.
1: And she talks about identity and the security of that identity in this chapter.
2: That God has made us his children. That Mm -hmm. God... Pays attention to us, um, the number of hairs on our head, that He cares for us. Um, in you know that if He can clothe the lilies of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow with such beauty, how much more so does He do for us? That to reorient ourselves is in in grace is to to be realize what is who is God, what has He done. And, and what is, who am I in Christ?
1: Yeah. And she says, I mean, this freedom, I mean, when, when your soul's off the rails, you have to tell your soul, you know, where you were, what God did to save you, how he freed you from your chains and why you alone can't stop your own worry, fear, and doubt. And um, I like that. She says, I'm done with treading water when the shores of grace are mine to dwell on. Just treading water, trying to be in control, trying to make your own way. Uh, you know, when you're um afraid when he's he's giving you that that freedom.
2: And I would to say come to, through him. so to counter that fear is God's grace, but we do have to be humble. Because yes. sometimes it comes down to I'm I'm motivated by fear because I want what I want. And so I have to Surrender myself to God and what He is designed in me, and what He's doing, and what He wants from me.
1: And if this is a mental battle. Mm-hmm. I mean, this battle is so often won and lost in the mind. Um,
2: I like Sinclair Ferguson's quote that she gives: uh, "What Christ is doing you, doing in you, is incomplete, but in what Christ." Jesus has done for you, there's not a single tiny crack that the satanic arrows can penetrate. Mm. That that Satan, being the one who causes a lot of fear in us, that because of what Jesus has already done for us, uh, he, he can't win. Mm.
1: Okay, these last um, couple chapters, uh, this one's important. Grace makes forgiveness possible. And um she quotes em bound saying gratitude and murmuring never abide in the same heart at the same time and um she says the stories we tell ourselves about how we are loved or not loved how we're guilty or forgiven rescued or perishing are the stories that tell us to either strive for self-improvement or rest in life transforming grace she says we all have pride that makes another sin seem so much worse than our own. It's the kind of pride that forgets the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. So God's grace lets us stop trying to fix ourselves and others and, you know, basically receive his forgiveness and extend forgiveness in, in this chapter here.
2: Just, and, you know, receiving forgiveness is so important. Mhm you know, some get this mixed up and say we need to forgive ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not very powerful. No. I mean, because it's God who forgives us even though we don't deserve it because of what he's done for us. And I really think a lot of times it starts there. And one who's received forgiveness then has the ability and wants to or, you know, struggles towards forgiving those who can be hard to forgive
1: hmm and she's you know basically is saying in this chapter that grace transforms the way we seek to change other people mm-hmm. um and that you know she you know often realizes that she you know we how easily we can all become obsessed with improving others mm-hmm. um as much as we're you know driven to improve ourselves and You know, we want to do this to avoid pain and disappointment and heartache, but the truth is we simply aren't enough. We're not perfect enough, all-knowing enough, good enough, wise enough to orchestrate the kind of life that won't let us down Mm -hmm. and, or to orchestrate the kind of relationships that won't let us down. And I mean, this is where she's saying, this is the good news of the gospel because the only person that's promised to never let us down and never let us go is God.
2: And doesn't that rubber meet the road in marriage where you have the other person and they, you know, you feel hurt or slighted or disappointed and that the answer in many of those cases eventually gets to forgiveness rather than to try to change them Mm -hmm. and to rest in God and what, you know, what he's you know, done and doing. Mm. And then it comes out in parenting in that we we try to, you know, influence our kids to be a certain way and rather than deal with some of the, you know, disappointments and so forth, uh, you know, that might come.
1: Well, and a big part of what she's going to talk about here, if you, you know, read or listen to this chapter is just that, You know, biblically, keeping score is trying another person in the courtroom of your mind and subjecting them to the law that you've declared and the standard you've created. It's counting their missteps and the ways you've covered for them again and again. So when we keep score, we play judge and deem who's worthy and who's impossible and who will change and who will never change and who doesn't deserve us and, you know, that scorekeeping basically just as she says is pride and it's saying why can't you just be more like me ouch yeah and um and you know she's she's saying there's there's just a strong connection between how we treat others and you know the story we tell ourselves which is what you were talking about with you know with humility so um self-belittlement And self-loathing actually flow from a heart that excuses itself on account of worthlessness and rejects the hope that it's offered, and neither resemble true humility on either side of it. So, you know, this um and she's just talking about how gracelessness of self-loathing and self-diminishing eventually leads to hopelessness um, toward others or toward the relationship and. Um, I, I, I just love that she says our choosing to forgive others is how we know grace is amazing in our lives. I mean, that it should be honestly one of the most astounding fruits that mm-hmm. come out of our salvation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, and that we don't have to feel good about unresolved issues in our family or our story to actually forgive those mm-hmm. who have caused the hurt,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know by the grace of God, I don't have to feel happy about the betrayals or the Mm -hmm. unfair circumstances I've experienced in order to forgive. Um, But it's realizing I'm called to the same humility and forgiveness um, that God's given me. And I mean, it's, it is, that's why she's saying grace makes forgiveness possible Mm -hmm. because it's possible for us to relinquish our control of another's behavior Mm -hmm. and remember Instead, that God's the author of mm-hmm. change; He's the agent of change, and,
2: and it's so freeing. Because sometimes the catalyst for um, it is to forgive someone else. Even and grace is what allows us to to not have everything all resolved and figured out and put in our nice, neat mm-hmm. little package. But we just forgive.
1: And she says, how many times have you withheld favor from your kids, your spouse, Mm. your friends, your family members, believing that to give them grace will be to excuse their behavior. Giving grace when we are not Jesus is not pardoning sin or acting as a savior. It's simply removing yourself as judge and jury and extending and communicating the very grace of God that has rescued you from being labeled Mm. hopeless, disappointing, and unforgivable.
2: Yeah, if you're a person that would say, or if we ever say, I can't forgive, then we don't understand grace. Grace is what counters our inability to forgive. Mm -hmm. That's
1: good. All right, so the last one is grace is enough to hold us all together. Um, Chapter 15 here, and I like that she really starts this chapter with the You know, words from um, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Um, She says, I know you think you have to hold it all together, your home, your kids, your school schedule, your relationships, your family dynamics, your work performance, your fears, and your pursuit of God. I would add maybe, I, I was just thinking, I mean, I might add, you know, it's up to us to hold our health together or our future together, our finances. But she says, take your eyes off everything you think you need to be amazing and be amazed instead at God's grace. And this chapter, and I mean, she's kind of been saying that all along from the very beginning of.
2: You know, I want to break out in song if I can. No,
1: grace,
2: please. grace. No, God's let's get Michael
1: to sing grace, for us. Michael,
2: <laughs> grace that is greater than all my sins.
1: Wow, honey. All right, pretty good. Yeah, there you me. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Michael. <laughs> he he can get the pitch right, honey. Um,
2: you're not seeking the, appro- a, the approval
1: a, or acceptance of man by doing that. I'm proud of you. <sighs>
2: Like I really worry <laughs> about that. I think it's a, that grace is such a powerful yes. thing, greater than mm-hmm. all of all of this. So I commend to anyone just to you know a, a read in this or thinking back through some of what we've said here.
1: Mm-hmm. She says here, just to close, that C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity says all this trying. Leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this. I can't. Mm-hmm. We sometimes fight getting to that place. Mm-hmm. And we do. And we make life much more difficult for us and those around us.
2: In this process yeah, and of grace as he leads us to that
1: place.
2: Mm-hmm. He and, lets us go so to that place. And he's so
1: gracious in his patience toward us as we struggle to surrender and say, um, you must do this I can't yeah so thanks for joining us in January here in February we'll be discussing a book on marriage and um, as man plans his ways our plan for March will be um, to review some really important facts and tips from several different books on the growing impact and temptation of pornography so um, that's the direction we're going for February and March and we'll plan to see you next month
0: Thank you again for joining us today on the Redeemed Hearts podcast. We pray that today's episode brought you hope and encouragement. If you're looking for more content from William Danina or want to reach out and contact us, we encourage you to visit RedeemedHeartsMinistries.com. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, and share this episode on social media. Have a great week, and God bless.